Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. French History Podcast. My name is Gary Chauhaut. Guest Episode 1. France and the Silver Screen, Part 1, with Liz Renshaw. Hello, and welcome to the very first special episode of the French History Podcast. One of my aims for this podcast is to bring together scholars from all fields to share their expertise on French history. In retrospect, I don't think there's any better place to start than with a look at French cinema history. France is famous for many things, but its cinematic achievements are of paramount interest to the world, though I'm guessing most English-language speakers have only touched the surface of France's rich filmography. I know I personally need to watch more French films, and while listening to Liz's list of important films, I know what I'll be checking out next. French cinema is a truly powerful phrase. To most Americans, it invokes a kind of depth rarely seen in American films. I personally remember a phase during my undergrad years in which I got addicted to French cinema. I remember watching a film called Les Chansons d'Amour, which translates as Love Songs, in a French class, and it remains one of my favorite films of all time. Looking back, I'm not sure how good it was. It was certainly bizarre. But it was definitely a slap in the face to the typical American musical romance film, and that's why I love it to this day. From there, I went on to watch Amelie, La Vie en Rose, and a bunch of contemporary French films. Today's episode takes us back to the beginning of French cinema, when France was the premier filmmaking nation in the world before the rise of Hollywood, and it's certainly a must-listen introduction for anyone interested in French film. Today's guest host is Liz Renshaw. Liz is a Ph.D. candidate at Michigan Technological University, studying rhetoric, theory, and culture with a focus on media studies, particularly narratology, feminism, and video game theory. However, her initial research background is that of film, and today she'll return to her roots to talk about what she believes is the true birth of the movies, French cinema. I want to give a special thanks to Liz for doing this on such short notice. 
I had one guest who was going to deliver an episode, but then got the flu. Then I had another guest lined up, but she had to actually cut her vacation short because she got accepted in a new job and had to do a bunch of preparation for that. So uh, Liz really came through both for me and for the podcast. So thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much, especially because I had no idea uh, just how big a request it was that I was making. In retrospect, I should have realized just how big a topic French cinema history uh, is. Uh, I should have figured how big this request was because I asked Liz to give us an introduction to French cinema at a time when French cinema was the most important in the world. So thank you very much for putting up with my insane request. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode as we take a dive through early French cinema, looking at early sci-fi films, surrealism, and the development of artistic masterpieces before the decline in the French cinema scene. And yes, to answer your question, Liz, I would love to have you back for further episodes so I can add more movies to my list. Without further ado, I give you the French History Podcast's own film expert, Liz Renshaw. When Gary asked me to record a podcast on the history of French cinema, I was really excited There are definitely periods in French cinematic history that I'm a huge fan of. Uh, French New Wave, especially films like Breathless, the current uh, French horror scene that is just a little bit left of torture porn, uh, but with a feminist twist. There are definitely some very interesting angles to look at. Uh, But then Gary requested that... He wanted to talk about the rise of French cinema to its fall giving way to American cinema post-World War II, which is essentially 50 years of history. Uh, For anyone who's taken a Film 101 class uh, or a film history class, usually if they separate it into two, one semester and then the second semester, the first semester is usually starting in 1890 and then going to 1945, so end of World War II, and then the second semester would be post-1945. French cinema is that exact same length of 1890 to 1945 is the rise and fall because French cinema is just as integral to the origin of film as American cinema. And some could argue even more so, or that you can't have cinema without both Edison, and the Lumiere brothers, who we'll be first talking about. Um, Because there are so many films and movements and movies to talk about in that 50-year period of 1890 to 1945, I'm going to pick what I think are the top five films that represent various movements and decades within that period to discuss. So we're going to start off First, going on to talk a little bit about the Lumiere brothers, even though I don't think their films 
aesthetically represent the beginning of cinema, but I do want to give a quick touch upon who these two guys are because they're essentially the exact opposite of America's first, I guess, film monopolist, Thomas Edison. Siegfried Krakauer, who, if you do know anything about international cinema, his theories and history much more often focus on German film, uh, particularly German Expressionism and World War II German cinema. Uh, But he denotes that the two main tendencies of cinema, especially in Europe, the focus should be on Lumiere and Georges Méliès. In one of his articles, uh, he explains that Lumiere's films contained a true innovation as compared with the repertoire of the zoetropes of Edison's peep boxes, they pictured everyday life after the manner of photographs. There are several Lumiere Brother films that you can still go and see on YouTube. There's Baby's Breakfast, The Card Players. I would recommend watching Teasing the Gardener. It shows that slapstick comedy uh, has always been around in cinematic history. But I think it's also a good example of narrative in such a short period of time. It does have a three-act structure, even though it's only about 30 seconds. The Lumiere brothers are also very famous for um, scenes of the world, I guess you could say. Gorky describes them as Lumiere's lens did open on the world, uh, take his immortal first reels lunch hour at the Lumiere factory, arrival of the train, and... La Place de Corillo et Lyon. The reason why some of these first reels are immortal, there is the urban legend of when Arrival at a Train was first shown in theaters. And we're not talking theater as we imagine the modern day. We're talking more of a projection screen put at a cafe that the angle that the train came at, audiences who had never seen a film before, as the train headed towards the camera that there were people supposedly scared that the train was actually going to come at them. And it's the camera work and the cinematography that was being done over in France that made it very different than what Edison was doing over in the U.S. I would describe early American cinema as much more technical, um, working on just getting a lot of films out of various different genres, putting it out there, very capitalist, and even though there was the strict realism, according to Gorky of Lumiere, and the artistic imagination of Méliès, I would say both those groups, the Lumiere brothers and Méliès, were artists when it came to how they treated cinema, while Americans were technicians. And even the Cipra camera angles, uh, camera angles, with the early Lumiere Brother films, even though the content was very realistic, I think it was just so that they were testing the realms of cinema at an early age. So that's why I think the Lumiere Brothers are incredibly important to talk about. We're going to talk about not just the origin of French cinema, but the origin of cinema in general. But as I said, I think the most important first film to look at in French cinema history is Voids to the Moon by Georges Méliès. A Journey to the Moon, also known as Trip to the Moon, was released in 1902, and it is an adaptation of Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon and Around the Moon. Much of early cinema uh, was actually adaptations of novels or plays, 
Edison even did a very early adaptation of Frankenstein, The Wizard of Oz. So when we complain today about lack of originality in films, that's been going on uh, since the beginning. What's interesting about Melies is he started out as a magician. That's his background. He wasn't a technician. So he started out on stage. And we see a lot of that in the U.S. as well, but it's mainly uh, comedic actors um, coming in from the stage and then bringing their tricks. Uh, so we have, like, Shacklin and stuff uh, in America, but over in Europe, you had it for the directors as well. And what's important about that is the special effects that he was able to use. And A Trip to the Moon shows plenty of them. We're talking about in-camera special effects for the most part, not post-production. Uh, but there were examples of that as well. Um, there were time-lapse photography, dissolves, exposures. Um, he used a lot of effects that you would see on stage. Uh, so for disappearing objects and such. But what's even more important is hand-painted color. We think of cinema pre-1930s as black and white cinema. And it was black and white, but could have color added to it. And that was something that, especially in Europe, over the U.S., they took advantage of it, and especially Melies. So A Trip to the Moon is one of the first science fiction or fantasy films uh, Vern's work uh, itself is very difficult to define genre-wise, so same with any adaptation of his film. It is basically about a bunch of wizards-scientists um, based on the costumes. It's, again, difficult to define uh, that decide to take a trip to the moon. And this is where that iconic image of the man in the moon really comes from. They shoot up this uh, rocket and lands right in the eye of Man in the Moon, and you see them exploring the place, and many iconic images that we now have of Space Adventures comes from this very film. And so that's why I believe that representing the earliest of genre films, but also the films of the 1900s, so 1900 to 1909, Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off. That again is FrenchHistory50 at factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50. Sign up now 
Your stomach will thank you later. Melia's trip to the moon is probably the go-to. If you want to know what was going on back then, go watch this film. Coming in in the 1910s, uh, I'm not going to pick a film, but a series of films. So we're very familiar here in the U.S. with radio serials. Uh, and we have The Phantom in the Shadow over here in the U.S. And over in France, uh, it was based on, again, a series of books or novels in this case. Uh, I want to talk about the 1913 serial Phantomus. Phantomus is probably most recognizable to U.S. audiences for its main character, uh, Think Tuxedo Max. Uh, it, he pretty much looks like Tuxedo Mask. Uh, the Phantomus is known for being on his posters in a very nice tux. He's got the top hat, and then he has a very simple uh, black mask across his eyes. Uh, Phantomus was a serialized series known for having cliffhangers at the end, and why I think it's an important series of French cinema at the time is it really did predict the direction that French cinema was going to take and French media in general for the rest of the 20th century because these crime stories, particularly burglary stories, were going to be hit upon in cinema again and again afterwards. Uh, you can see that with Band of Outsiders, Les Samurai, uh, Reefy uh, coming out. So in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, this pattern still continues, but it all really starts off with Phantomus. And Phantomus was also a big deal because it spoke to the overnight stardom uh, that could occur. So you had Rene Navarre, who became a star, this celebrity in France, overnight for his portrayal in Phantomus. Um, many stars in France would go on to become big stars in the U.S. That was not the case with Rene Navarre, but you can see that with actors such as Maurice Chevalier. More of his bigger films uh, came when he went to the U.S. and started performing in musicals there. Um, but the U.S. wasn't the only one with the star system. France had that as well. Phantomus is also another set of films that it's very easy to find online. I would definitely recommend uh, watching the first episode in the shadow of the guillotine. I think that's one of the best. And personally, the third episode, the murderous corpse is also incredibly good. So definitely check that out. I think it's always important to see that cinema isn't just strictly um, shorts or movies, but the serialized action of it as well, because it goes and speaks to the different attendance behavior of the time period in the 1910s. Um, first episode is about 54 minutes when you put all the pieces together. Third episode is about 90 minutes. So they were telling large stories. You could think of them as early TV series in a way, um, but they were telling them in just bits and pieces. And again, the narrative focusing on cliffhangers, I would say that up until the 1920s, Europe, so we're talking there, German storytelling, a little bit of the uh, Italian, some Swedish, but mainly Germany and France, that their storytelling, again, was a bit more experimental and taking more creative chances than American cinema. American cinema was stealing it uh, from the Europeans. 
For the 1920s, I'm going to cheat a little bit, both in regards to the number of films I'm discussing, but also the time period. The 1920s, both in French cinema and in French art overall, uh, saw the rise of surrealism uh, taking over from Impressionism. So we're talking about the works of Deda, André Brenton. Uh, we also saw Germain Dulac, who had originally worked in uh, regular feature filmmaking and French Impressionism, turn over to Surrealism, uh, in particular with the film Cecil and the Clergyman. What I really enjoy about French Surrealism is even though the films have very surrealistic, some could say odd, weird, incoherent imagery, is a lot of French Surrealist films are very metaphor-heavy, but still have a clear narrative. You're definitely sitting there confused at some points trying to figure out what's going on, but then everything ties well together. So I wouldn't call them or go as far as to say avant-garde films because there's still a narrative behind them. The purpose is still to tell a story, but they're telling that story through surreal imagery. A lot of uh, quintessential surrealist films weren't actually directed by a Frenchman, but instead directed by the Spaniard Luis Buñuel, and he would team up often with Gene uh, Epstein, but also Salvador Dali. One of his most famous films and one of the most famous images in cinematic history is from the 1928 and then Dog. And in it, at one point, uh, the film just begins with a man inexplicably slicing the heroine's eye open with a razor. Uh, and yet, in the next shot, she's completely fine. Again, this is pulling on French cinematic history of using special effects and trickery and magic. How that shot was completed, since we don't have CGI, was the camera zoomed in on what appeared to be the heroine's face, and it was, and zoomed into her eye. And the cutting of the eyeball was actually done, and students who took biology in high school may know that, was with a goat's eye, because goat's eye and cat's eyes are known for having a very similar consistency to human eye. Just side note, they also make very good bouncy balls. Uh, so that's how they were able to pull it off. Uh, despite the graphic nature, and Losing a Dog is not a horror film, but the friends do have somewhat of an interesting obsession with eyes and gore. Uh, later on in the French film Les Dobliques, uh, you would see a man sitting in a bathtub and you believe he's dead because you just see the whites of his eyes and he rises from the tub, uh, freaking out his wife who had intended on murdering him to be with her lover. And after she has a heart attack, he removes the whites of his eyes uh, that were just lenses put there. So the friends have some weird obsession with the uh, eyes and gore or tension upon the eye. Another of the surrealist films I want to talk about, which was also done by Dali and Buñuel, uh, was The Age of Gold in 1930. So again, sort of skirting the line between films that represent the 1920s. And that also has a lot of strong imagery uh, 
there's uh, an ox in a bed, there's an orgy scene that seems to involve uh, a Jesus-like figure, there's uh, a wedding ceremony where the uh, priests sort of weathered skeletons. So controversial, to say the least. Uh, but come the 1930s, uh, the surrealist films uh, began to decline. Some of that was due to the political activities of the filmmakers themselves and also rising tension in Europe in general. So even though several of the films I mentioned were 1928, 1930, they still represent the 1920s since that was sort of the end and the heyday of surrealist cinema. I'm very excited to talk about my choice for the 1930s as it is one of my favorite films of all time. Not just of the war genre, not just of France films, but of all time. And that is The Grand Illusion by Jean Renard from 1937. It's a anti-war film a film about pacifism. It's actually based on a British book called The Great Illusion that talks about the futility of war. The film is about a group of POWs during World War One who try to escape from their camp and the struggles that they face even after uh, getting out of there. Jean Renard is a very interesting filmmaker. He had success in Hollywood in the 1940s. The reason why he went into cinema was he was very influenced by the German films of Erich von Stroheim. American audiences may recognize Erich von Stroheim as the butler from Sunset Boulevard, but he was first a filmmaker and also an actor over in Europe before coming over to the US like Jean Renard eventually did. In this film, Jean Renard gets to work with Eric von Stroheim. He plays the German general in the film. And you can see the passion that both of them had, even though they did tend to butt heads because von Stroheim really wanted to delve into authenticity of what a German officer would do. And they didn't always agree, but it really does come through in the film how much passion, and in a way, despite the dramatic topic of it and the undramatic title, you really wouldn't guess that The Grand Illusion is essentially Hogan's hero, if Hogan's hero was very melancholy and dramatic, uh, but it really does come through in regards to just how painful and futile what they go through is every time you get your hopes up about what these prisoners of war can do, uh, even after they escape and just the closure gets to the end, you just don't know if they will succeed. And it's heartbreaking, but in a way you walk away from this film with some sense of hope. And that's a very difficult thing to do. One of the reasons why this is my favorite film is how I was introduced to it. I was at the 2012 Bologna Film Festival, which if you're interested in lost and found films or preserved films, I would definitely recommend trying to attend. It's in Bologna, Italy during the summer. So very hot, but very worthwhile. I've seen restored versions of Lawrence of Arabia and in this case, Grand Illusion as well there. What's interesting is the history of 
Grand Delusion and the original negative speaks to the history of French cinema at that time. So the film was released in 1937. It's known as one of Jean Renard's most famous and most successful films. It was loved by the likes of Orson Welles, who believed that it was the pinnacle of cinematic excellence. But after Germany invaded uh, during World War II, they took all the artwork, um, whether it be books or paintings or films, and they didn't burn the original negative, but they did take it. And then when Russia uh, came in after World War II, they took many of the artistic artifacts that Germany had taken from the nations it had invaded. Eventually, France was able to go to various libraries in Russia, which, by the way, if you didn't know, Russia's history with their libraries is still um, growing. It's one of the places that, in Moscow especially, one of the few quiet places that you can go to and study, but also one of the places with great artistic expression for the millennials of Russia in regards to they can get their hands on actual books, but they can get their hands on musical compositions, on films, and such. So Le Grand Illusion was found in one of these Russian libraries in about the 1970s, but no one knew that the negatives they found were the original negatives for a long time. Uh, so a restored version came out in the 2010s, and it's a beautifully done version. But I like tracking the history of the negative because it really does track what happens during a war. It isn't just the loss of life, but the loss of history as well. And getting back La Grand Illusion really speaks to how the French resisted, and they resisted through their art. And that was a tendency that Jean Renard continued. When he came over to the U.S., he made several anti-Nazi films as well when he was over here. So that's one reason why I truly do love uh, Le Grand Delusion. And the film that I want to discuss for the 1940s continues that trend, and that is the epic romance, essentially the Gone with the Wind of French cinema, and that is 1945's Children of Paradise, which was actually made during Nazi occupation in France. There were still French films made through a German company known as Continental Films, and why that existed was that the Germans didn't want the invasion of American films, so they would work with French filmmakers to fill in slots at movie theaters. Children of Paradise is not that case. It was sort of made under the nose of Nazis. It is directed by Michel Cagnier, and it tells a story, a sweeping romance, again, set against Parisian theater scene of the 1820s and 30s, and it's about a courtesan and the four men who are interested in her. So you can see uh, influence uh, with the modern film Moulin Rouge playing in there. Again, this was one of those films that directors like Francis uh, Truffaut and David Chipman have said is a pinnacle of cinematic history, not just of French cinema. Really what gives rise to strong French films, from what you can see in this very short podcast, trying to touch upon about 50 years of cinema, is the work of resistance. 
And their films usually come through with that sense of hope, even if the endings may not always be that typical Hollywood ending that you would expect. Now, at the beginning of this, I told you that Gary had asked me to talk about the rise of French cinema, especially in comparison to Hollywood cinema, how French were able to maintain their identity to the fall of French cinema due to Hollywood. I don't believe that French cinema really fell due to Hollywood. I believe it fell mainly due to World War II and the Germans taking away their older films, having many of the filmmakers like in Germany and in England. France was the same where a lot of them went over to Hollywood. So in that way, you could say that French cinema fell to Hollywood. But I believe that it was more talent leaving than Hollywood coming in. I hope this really sparked your interest in looking up French films. Hopefully Gary will ask me back and I can talk about the second half of cinematic and French history. And I would be happy to present you guys with some other top five lists. As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to visit our page and either make a one-time donation or become a Patreon, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.